Hey, it's Cher Ross. Hey everyone, this is Britt Lightning from, from Vixen. Vixen, and you're listening to Play That Rock and Roll with Joe K. And you're gonna keep listening because he plays awesome rock and roll! Keep rocking with Joe K. test this is play that rock and roll podcast edition i'm your host joseph k and like the song at the start says just call me joe today we're going to be talking about wait a minute what's that sound what's all these flashing lights oh shit it's the cops everybody out quick oh Okay, we're not actually uh, being raided by law enforcement right now. We're just having a little bit of fun with that because today we're actually talking about an artist who has a bit of a connection to the police, uh, although it's a minor one at that. If you haven't guessed, we are talking about Eddie Money. Yes, we are shaking with the money man today. Eddie Money, of course, known for any number of radio staples today, probably most famous for this one. I've got two tickets for paradise. Won't you pack your bags for me tonight? I've got two tickets for paradise. I've got two tickets for paradise. So Eddie Money was actually born Edward Mahoney on March 21st, 1949 in Brooklyn. He also lived in Levittown and Queens, making him very much a New York guy. And he came from, to quote a Charles Bronson movie, a family of cops. His father was a cop, his brother was a cop, and his grandfather was a cop. And because of this family dynamic, it was sort of expected that he would also join the force. Which he did when he became old enough in the mid-60s. Although that did not last very long. When he started his career, he was just a clerk for the police department. A typist. Uh, He was not a beat cop. He did not go on patrol. I don't even think he got a gun. And that did not last long. He left the force for a a couple of reasons. One of which, if you can believe it, was because uh, the police department didn't let him grow his hair out. (laughs) <laughs> and that and that bothered him. But more than anything else, he just didn't really like the job. 
Also, he was in a band already at that point, and his bandmates really did not like the idea of having a cop in the band. Because in, in, in the late 60s, rock and roll was a very rebellious scene. So having an actual cop in the band sort of causes a credibility issue. And more so than that, all the guys in the band, Eddie included, smoked a ton of weed. So they really did not want him around, you know, with a batch. But the bottom line was, law enforcement was not his calling. Rock and roll was. Ever since he was a kid, Eddie believed he was destined to be on stage, to perform in front of people, to be a frontman and a singer. And after giving law enforcement a shot and not liking it at all, he decided he wanted to follow his dream. So he moved out to one of the hottest music scenes in the country at that time, the San Francisco Bay Area. He moved out there in 1968, and if you remember my Steve Miller episode, that's almost the exact same time Steve Miller moved out to San Francisco uh, in that music scene, because that was where some of the hottest rock acts in the country were establishing themselves. In the late 60s, some of the biggest names that were coming out of San Francisco were groups like Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Santana, Janis Joplin was out there too. After Eddie arrived and started to establish his career in the late 70s and early 80s, some of his contemporaries from around that same time were Huey Lewis, Journey, Jefferson Starship, Doobie Brothers, and like I said before, Steve Miller. So it was a very good place to be if you were trying to establish yourself as a rock artist. Now, when Steve Miller moved out to San Francisco, he found a level of success almost immediately mostly because he had years of practice and he knew a lot of people in the industry. Eddie didn't have that luxury. Eddie came out to San Francisco as a nobody, and it took him years to get himself established. He didn't put out his first album until the end of 1977. If you talk to any artist who's established a level of success, almost all of them will tell you about the idea of the 10,000 hours. And the 10,000 hours basically means the insane amount of time that you have to practice more or less on your own to really know your craft. And over the course of eight, nine years, from 68 to 1977, that's exactly what Eddie was doing. Playing club gigs, performing on street corners, I mean, doing whatever he could to get better at singing rock music. And also starting to get to know people in the music scene out there. During that time, Eddie had a lot of stage names, and one of the stage names I found out about was at some point he was performing under the moniker Eddie Spaghetti, and I gotta say, I, of, of all of them, I really wish that one had stuck. <laughs> Although, of course, Eddie Money does carry a bit more dignity. Another thing artists will tell you that is very important about establishing a successful career is finding someone who can be an advocate for you, a powerful advocate, an agent, a promoter, a producer, somebody in the industry who can help you to further your career because nobody can truly do it all on their own. At some point, Eddie found one of the best possible people to be that advocate for him. He got the attention of Bill Graham. Now, Bill Graham might be one of the most important and influential and famous promoters 
of that entire era. This guy was tremendously important for the formation and popularity of rock music because he was the guy who booked all of these aforementioned San Francisco bands, and he made them famous with them playing in his venues, the Fillmore, East and West, and the Winterland. He would eventually book the 1982 Us Festival, which Eddie played. And if you don't know who Bill Graham is, you should look him up, do a little reading about him. So many bands that are household names today would not be if not for this guy. And Eddie is absolutely one of those artists. He owes his career to Bill, and he was never shy about that. He was always quick to credit Bill for being that advocate that he needed. He signed with Bill Graham some point in 77, and they released his debut eponymous album in December 1977. And that album holds two of his biggest hits. The first is this one, Baby Hold On. So baby, hold on to You should really know that one. <laughs> that one gets played on the radio all the time. Now, what's interesting is that Eddie didn't want to release this as the first single. The first single he wanted to release was the song I played a couple of minutes ago, Two Tickets to Paradise. He was really proud of that song, and he thought that was going to be the hit. And the label disagreed. In fact, the label told him that song was not commercial, which is quite hilarious in hindsight because, of course, it was. Well, either way, Baby Hold On was a hit. It hit number 11 on the Billboard charts. So they followed it up with Two Tickets to Paradise as the second single, which then hit number 22 on the Billboard charts. So his debut album was quite strong. Two big hits right off the bat. And then the last thing I'll say about that first album is the final track on the album is called Gamblin' Man. Now, a little piece of trivia. If you take the song Ramblin' Man by the Allman Brothers and do a mashup with this one, you end up with Ramblin' Gamblin' Man by Bob Seger. How about that? <laughs> Sorry, that's probably the worst joke I've ever made on this show. <laughs> okay, let's move on to his second album. His second album was called Life for the Taking, and it was released in January 1979, so just about a year later. I don't think this is a particularly strong record. The single Maybe I'm a Fool hit number 22 on the charts, but I don't really care for that one all that much. The album's uh, a little empty. There's some filler on this one. It, it, it doesn't do much for me. The only track that really stands out from this record, at least as far as I'm concerned, is called Give Me Some Water, uh, which I'll play a clip of here. Give me some water Yeah, this song's really cool. It's about being a gunslinger in the Old West. I, you know, maybe it's just because I love all those old spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood, but songs like those just do it for me. In fact, Give Me Some Water reminds me very vividly of a scene from my favorite of all those old movies, The Good and the Bad and the Ugly. By the way, R.I.P. Ennio Morricone, the composer who wrote that movie's brilliant score and soundtrack. There's a scene where Tuco, one of the film's antagonists, finds out about a chest of gold coins that is buried in a military cemetery, and that discovery sort of kicks off the main plot of the whole movie. 
So I'm going to play a quick clip of that movie just for some fun. I wonder if, if you've seen it. Do you remember this scene? I'm Lincoln's grandfather. What was that you said about the dollars? Two hundred thousand, old man. The gold. I hid the gold. The gold is safe. Where? Where? Oh. Here? Here? Tall crib. Huh? Uh, cemetery. Which grave? Have a name? Have a number? Come on, you dummy talk. get you water. Stay there. Don't move. I'll get you water. Don't die until later. Yeah, it's a great scene. And it's one of those things that give me some water <laughs> makes me think of. So maybe I'm the only one who's made that connection, but it's some fun. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. All right. Well, on the subject of movies, do you recognize this song? Okay, even if you haven't seen Caddyshack, of course you know the song I Am All Right by Kenny Loggins. Uh, what you might not know is that Eddie is on this song as well. 
pay very close attention uh, to this next quick clip where he sings No No Cannonball It Right Away. Yeah, that's Eddie. And here he is again, where he says, It makes me feel good. Yes, isn't that cool? That is Eddie Money. Him and Kenny Loggins were on the, the same label, and I don't know whose idea it was, but they brought Eddie in to sing one of the many vocal tracks on that I'm Alright song. That's one of Kenny Loggins' best songs, by the way. So, very cool to see Eddie's uh, connection there. Now, you would think this would establish some sort of friendship between Kenny Loggins and Eddie Money, but if you can believe it, it caused the exact opposite. In 2014, Eddie went on a Cincinnati radio show and said this about that song, I'm Alright. I'm not a fan of Kenny Loggins, to tell you the truth. I sang the bridge on that. We were label mates, you know. Kenny Loggins. I mean, how small can a guy be? That he divorces his wife and marries his therapist. Give me a break. <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually pretty funny. <laughs> uh, he continues. We were label mates on Columbia Records, and this guy never even gave me credit for doing the middle part of that song. That's what I call a scumbag. When host Kid Chris joked about Loggins and Money getting in a celebrity boxing ring, Eddie responded, uh, I'll tell you the truth, I'd knock him out in 20 seconds. <laughs> I believe him. <laughs> I mean, Kenny Loggins is freaking tall, but, you know, listen, Eddie's a, Eddie's a street kid from New York, you know, and hey, maybe he did go through some of that police training. So there, there you go. The world's least known rock feud, Kenny Loggins and Eddie Money. Okay, so Kenny put out uh, I'm Alright in 1980. Eddie also had an album in 1980. He released it in July. It was called Playin' for Keeps. And unfortunately, like the last record, this one really wasn't a hit. The opening track, uh, Trinidad, is probably the best song. Here, take a listen. Eddie's favorites of his songs. In 2019, he told Louis Anderson that he wished this one was better known. And I agree. I think it's one of his strongest songs. It's one of my favorites as well. There's a couple other songs in this album. One called Running Back. One called Satin Angel. Those are okay, but sort of, again, this isn't a particularly strong record. And because of that, he was actually under a lot of pressure to perform well on the next one. And to make matters worse... In November of 1980, Eddie almost died. He barely survived a huge drug overdose. With his rise to success, Eddie had developed a serious drinking and cocaine problem. He was indulging with both quite a bit by this point. And at some party, he was given a bag of what he thought was cocaine. He had been drinking all night. Got this bag of what he thought was cocaine, took it into the bathroom, he snorted it. Well, it wasn't cocaine. Of all things, it was fentanyl. Fentanyl is that opioid that infamously killed Prince and Tom Petty in 2016-2017, respectively. This is a serious drug, and he snorted it straight after a night of heavy drinking. He passed out immediately. Did a line, 
and boom, on the floor. Weirdly, no one came in to check on him. I guess everybody just left the party. To quote one of his later albums, where's the party? Well, they had all left. (laughs) And Eddie was alone in a bathroom. And he laid on the floor of this bathroom for some 15 hours, unconscious. And because of how he fell, his leg was bent, and circulation to that leg was cut off. And for that amount of time, the result was that it destroyed the sciatic nerve in his left leg. Eventually, a friend found him, got him to a hospital, and he was in a hospital for quite a while. They told him he had come very close to dying, and he had come even closer to losing permanent use of his leg. And it took him almost a full year of therapy to get use of his leg back. And he had to do concerts, and we'll talk about it in a minute, music video shoots, still hobbling around on a cane. Now, the one silver lining to him being put out of commission for several months was that he was able to take more time into putting together his next album, which he really needed to be a hit. Otherwise, he was, like, at risk of being dropped from the label. And that success did come when he released his album, No Control, in June 1982. It was all recorded while he was still in recovery. Like I said, he was using a cane during the music video shoots. He was barely just back on his feet when this came out. Now, the good news was it was a big hit, and it had two of his most famous songs. Uh, Take a listen to this one. You should know it. I think I'm in love. Think I'm in Love. That was the lead-off single. It hit number 16 on the Billboard pop charts, and it was a number one hit on the mainstream rock charts. And that was exactly the hit he needed to keep his career afloat. And that's a great song. It's a perfect radio staple. Although the second single, Shaken, I like even more. This one hit number 63 on the pop charts. Now, pay very close attention to the lyrics I'm going to play in this clip. Got so Did you hear that? Uh, He mutters it, but the lyrics there, and you won't find it printed anywhere, but the lyrics he sings were, her tits were shaken. (laughs) So I'm going to play that again. Listen for it. Her tits were shaken. Okay. Yeah, that sneaks by most people, and because this is still a radio staple today. But... Some people noticed it, Bill Graham noticed it, and Bill screamed at Eddie for it. He said this could have been a number one hit, but Eddie was on his bullshit and (laughs) thought, you know, he'd he'd sneak by something cute. Yeah, I talked about in my Joe Walsh episode, Joe Walsh did something very similar with his song ILBTs. The difference being ILBTs was never meant for the radio. (laughs) Eddie snuck this onto the radio, which I got to give him props for. It's pretty funny. My last note about this is that if you watch the music video for Shaken, I gotta say, unlike most classic rock guys, like, Eddie clearly loved making music videos. So many classic rock guys look so uncomfortable and so miserable when they're doing these video shoots. Eddie's not one of those guys. He is having fun. He And he is really funny to watch in these videos. If you like music videos, he's one of those guys that you should check out because... 
you can see he's enjoying the process, and that just makes for a better video. In 2018, Eddie said, I think the No Control album was my best record. And he's probably right. That's probably his best record. It's one of his top three, at least. And now, one of the coolest things about the tour cycle to promote No Control was he played the aforementioned Us Festival that Bill Graham helped put together. Now, the Us Festival, I could do a whole episode on that. And at some point, I probably will. So I'm not going to take too much time on it. Uh, I'm just going to say that when Eddie took the stage of the Us Festival, this was in, I think, San Bernardino, California, on Labor Day, Labor Day weekend. So it was an outdoor festival. It was insanely hot. And it was a huge crowd was at this show. And in an effort to just keep people from overheating, getting dehydrated. Every once in a while, stagehands would blast water hoses onto the crowd to help cool them down. So when Eddie was out on stage playing his set, when he was singing Give Me Some Water, he had the guys with the water hoses shoot off the, the water hoses while he was singing Give Me Some Water. I'm going to play a quick clip of that because that's, that's a real cool song. Smack that horse. I said, smack that horse in the ass. And with my last dying gasp, Bill, give him some water. Give him some water. Yeah, that's a genuine, awesome rock and roll stage moment. And it was one of the highlights of the Us Festival. So I think it's very cool that Eddie got to do something like that. I think right now is a good time to take a break. We're going to look at some recent headlines in the world of classic rock. We're going to cut over to a segment I call Yesterday's News. Let's take a listen. Quite yesterday, but still some recent headlines from the world of classic rock. Unfortunately, like in previous episodes, in the age of COVID, there's not much going on in the music industry, or at least the classic rock scene. So, unfortunately, the biggest news of the day is often the obituaries. And if I flip over to the obituaries in my classic rock newspaper, there's two big names right off the bat. One I mentioned earlier, Ennio Morricone. I could talk for an hour about how much I love that guy's soundtrack music. I, I don't want to get into that today because he's not a classic rock guy, but if you don't know Ennio Morricone's music scores and you like instrumental music or you like film music, you better know who he is. And if you don't, go look him up. He wrote some of the best music for movies ever. He's, you know, maybe not at John Williams' level, but for my tastes, he's pretty close. So... I'll just say that about Ennio Morricone. The one I will talk about a little bit more is Charlie Daniels. Outlaw, country rock, icon, Charlie Daniels. How can I talk about Charlie Daniels? Very much a divisive figure in the world of rock and roll, and country, I imagine. I always referred to him as Uncle Charlie on Twitter, because he always struck me as sort of the, the conservative uncle of the whole genre of classic rock. He's the guy at your Thanksgiving dinner who sang 
inappropriate, offensive stuff that's bothering everybody else. But you can't kick him out because he's family. Now I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But I do want to salute the guy because I'm torn about him. Of course, everybody knows the devil went down to Georgia. That's a genre-defining song. I loved that song as a kid. But to tell you the truth, as an adult, I could sort of take it or leave it. Not to say it's bad, it's just not the one that I choose to listen to if I'm thinking of Charlie Daniels. The ones that I really like, and these are the ones I'll point you to listen to if you're interested in exploring his music. He's got a song from uh, the early 80s called Still in Saigon, which is it's a barn burner of a song, but it's, it's about a very serious issue. It's about um, soldiers coming back from the Vietnam War and the hard time they have adjusting to society. Damn if I know who I am, there was Thematically, it's not very far from Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. And songs like that are really interesting to me. So that's probably my favorite of his work. There's another one called South's Gonna Do It. That one is basically just a big celebration of the genre of rock he comes out of. Southern rock. It's basically a salute to every other artist that he shares that genre with, right? Like, like Leonard Skinner and ZZ Top. It's good to, to see him salute uh, th that genre, which I, to tell you the truth, I love quite a bit. Of course I love ZZ Top, and I like 38 Special, and, and even Molly Hatchet a little bit. And then the third song I'll point you to is, I, and I mentioned this when I was back on my old YouTube channel and I was talking about Eric Clapton. Charlie Daniels, in 1991, put out a record called Renegade, and he did a killer cover of Eric Clapton's Layla, which is mind-blowing to me because the original version of Layla is one of the best songs of the 1970s. It's one of the best rock songs ever. You can't improve upon it, and I'm not saying Charlie improved upon it, but he did do something very interesting with it. And his version replaces the guitar solo and the piano outro with a fiddle solo. So take a quick listen to this. Yeah, I don't know. That does it for me. I think he just kills it on that solo and if you're interested in exploring some of Charlie's lesser known stuff you know I would I would give that one a listen now the thing about Charlie is he is a man of contrasts because for all this great music he also put out some real ugly stuff too and I don't want to get too political here I don't want to fall into the trappings of being a podcaster who scolds people from an earlier generation for the shit that that was okay back then that's not now. But here's the thing. Charlie put out stuff that was really fucking questionable back then. The worst of which um, is, a, is a version of his song called Uneasy Rider. In the early 70s, he put out a song called Uneasy Rider. It's a story of him having his car break down and going into the wrong bar and getting into a big bar fight and getting chased out of town. Kind of fun. Pretty harmless. But in 1988, 
he released a new version of that song called Uneasy Rider 88, where he kept the music and production and composition more or less the same, made a couple of changes, but totally redid the lyrics. So now it's a story about him and his buddy having their car break down, and they go into a gay bar. And then he put his hand on my knee. I said, if you don't get your paw off me, I'm going to locate your nose around on the side of your head. He said, I love it when you get that fire in your eye. I said, well, partner, try this on for size. And I unloaded on him. He went out like a light. The person that is hitting on his friend, their wig comes off and... Charlie's friend realizes it's a man, and a big fight breaks out, and Charlie portrays it as if him and his buddy were like the victims of the big, mean gay guys who are bullying them, and it is a wildly uncomfortable listen. I, as soon as I finished listening to it, I tweeted that it was an uneasy listen, uh, and it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty ugly sentiment in that song. If you followed him on Twitter. He tweeted some ridiculously reactionary stuff on a daily basis because in his old age, Charlie really became one of those old guys who sits around watching Fox News all day. I don't think Fox News radicalized him or anything like that or even talk radio. I think Charlie was always that guy. He just found some comfort in watching his uh, cable news political junk food. But if you followed him on Twitter, these are the tweets he would post every single day without fail. 22 veterans commit suicide every day. Pray for the blue. 125,000 innocent unborn babies will be murdered by abortionists around the world today. Remember 9-11. And the worst of all of them, Benghazi ain't going away. And when I first followed him on Twitter, I always assumed that, like, there was some automated service that just tweeted these automatically for him. <laughs> but that was not the case, because uh, I remember there was one time where he posted a, a typo, and he, and he tweeted, Remember 011. And I realized, like, holy shit, every day this guy gets up, presumably puts on Fox News, and as, he, as he's watching Fox and Friends in the morning... He tweets these all out every day by memory. And now that he's passed, uh, his staff and his family have said they're going to continue to tweet these things every single day, as it is honestly part of his brand. Now that is all sort of depressing, but I will, so I will conclude with something that is genuinely funny that might bring this back down to earth a little bit. In January 2018, Taco Bell was running those, um, like, Taco Illuminati commercials. You know what? Here, I'll play one real quick. 20 items for a dollar. 20 steps on the pyramid. Who's really behind this? Is it the Illuminati or the Bell-Illuminati? Experience the power of the dollar at Taco Bell. Okay, yeah, pretty harmless and also, like, really dumb, but... Charlie's reaction to these commercials was tweeting on January 8th, 2018. Hey, Taco Bell, the Illuminati is not a frivolous subject. <laughs> 
So that should really just give you an idea of like where his head is at. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't worry too much about Charlie because that's that is just insanity. And you know, I don't want to whitewash his legacy. He definitely put some real nasty stuff out there, but at the same time, you know, he was on Bob Dylan records. He contributed to a lot of great, timeless music. It's a very conflicting feeling uh, to be a fan of his, but I did appreciate a lot of his music. And like I said, I always called him Uncle Charlie. He's just sort of that guy. I do have sympathy for his family. And Charlie was very well liked in the music industry. A lot of rock guys posted their respects and their stories about knowing Charlie and what sort of guy he was in person. So with that, rest in peace, Charlie Daniels. Let's move on to a couple of stories that aren't really news, but just some interesting drama on Twitter. On July 2nd, Stephen Piercy from RAT tweeted out in all caps, UNMASK AMERICA, which, unless you're living under a rock, masks have now become an incredibly divisive political wedge issue right now, which is profoundly annoying in the age of COVID. And some group called the Bullet Boys responded to his tweet by tweeting, hashtag lions not sheep. Now that right there tells me all I need to know about those guys. I'm not familiar with their music, but that is like, if you post lions not sheep to any political opinion, to me, that tells me that you are like the dumbest guy in the room every time you're in a room. I don't know who these Bullet Boys are, but fuck them. Now, another act I'm not a big fan of is Sebastian Bach from Skid Row. But he responded to Steven saying, in all caps, hashtag, put a fucking mask on. And he sort of led the backlash against Steven for posting this Unmask America shit. So a day later, Steven tweets out, my response, I don't give a fuck. As Mr. Jimi Hendrix once said, I'm the one that's got to die when it's my turn to die. So let me live my life the way I want to. Now, whatever Jimmy was talking about with that quote, it was not in regards to a pandemic. So fuck off with that. That response bugged me, so I quote tweeted that and responded, Sure, but not wearing a mask puts others around you at risk. You can die however you want, but you ain't got no right to bring anyone else down with you. Wear a mask for the people around you, moron. When I posted that, just a moment later, I scrolled on Twitter, and I saw one of the accounts I follow that usually shouts out various celebrities' birthdays, and I see a tweet that says, Happy birthday to this person, this person, and Stephen Piercy of Rat today. I realized I called him a moron on his birthday, and I actually felt kind of bad about that. So I go back to my tweet, and I subtweet it, and I write, Oh, and happy birthday at Stephen Piercy, LOL. And at this point, it's pretty late at night, so I, you know, turn off my phone and go to bed. The next morning, I wake up to notifications that Stephen Piercy had followed me on Twitter and liked my happy birthday tweet, <laughs> which is a subtweet to a tweet where I call him a moron. He must have seen that, right? And when I saw that he followed me, I expected it was because he wanted to send me a DM like calling me a moron, telling me to fuck off or whatever. But that message never came. Weird, right? Well, it gets weirder. So Sebastian Bach then tweets that day, We just got a text from Stephen Piercy and Christie telling us that Stephen's account got hacked and he never tweeted to Unmask America. I am so happy to hear that one of my heroes and great friends is on the good team. 
So I retweeted that and I just said weird. And I said that because my account got hacked is a lame excuse and I'm I do not believe that happened. That seems to be the go-to for people who don't quite understand what account hacking is when they post something they shouldn't. But you know what? I, I could be wrong. Maybe his account did get hacked. Who knows? So whatever. Hopefully that is the end of Stephen Piercy tweeting about masks in any capacity. So moving on to my last story. On July 9th, Great White plays first on first. Dickinson Summer Nights in Dickinson, North Dakota. This is a small town festival in North Dakota. Now the band Great White is, is their biggest hit is called Once Bitten Twice Shy, but they are most famous for a nightmare of a disaster that happened in 2003 in Rhode Island when they shot off a bunch of pyrotechnics inside of a club and the club's walls caught fire and the fire burned the place down and killed a hundred people in the process. Horrible story. And you would think a band with that in its history would take extra care to not play shows ever that could potentially put people in the audience at risk. But that's exactly what they did. Now, one of the things that's sort of getting lost in the shuffle with all the articles about this story is that the lineup of Great White in 2003 is not the same lineup almost at all as it is today. In fact, there's like two different Great Whites, okay? The Great White that did the show in North Dakota this week is led by Mark Kendall, the guitarist. He's the only one who played that disaster show in 2003 with Jack Russell. You can blame Jack Russell for a lot. But he's not the one that had them do the show this week. It's not Jack Russell's Great White who played North Dakota. In fact, he's been on record saying that people should be wearing masks and should be social distancing and bands shouldn't be doing shows. So, you know, at the end of the day, Great White is just one of those hair metal bands that has different members every time they go out on the road. So who should know better? It's tough to say. Really, it's just the main guy, Mark Kendall, as far as I'm concerned. This story really pissed me off. Great White, in any form, should take particular care not to ever do a show again that puts anyone at any level of risk, no matter what. This is enough bad news, (laughs) shitty stories. But before I cut back to the main show, I'm just going to reiterate what I've been saying in, in every episode I've released during COVID. Like, if you're looking to fill the time the spare time you have at home now, I really want to encourage you to dive into those rock biographies you might have laying around or, you know, go on streaming services or on YouTube pages. So many bands have put out full concert performances that you can watch. Hook that up to your big screen TV, put that on on a Friday night, get your concert fixed that way. And then finally, I haven't been as good about posting them, but I'm going to get back to it. Dive into your album collection. Listen to a full album a day. That's what I've been doing. I listen to a full album, randomly selected, classic rock record. I listen to it all the way through. I get to the ones I've been meaning to listen to. Use music to get through this era of COVID. Okay, with that, taking too much time here, let's jump back to segment two, Eddie Okay, October 1983. Eddie's label wanted to capitalize on the success he was having with No Control, so they pushed him into the studio, and they pressured him to put something out very quickly so they could have more product in the stores. 
and more stuff to sell the next time you went on a tour. And unfortunately, because it was a Rush production, the album they put out, which was called Where's the Party, appropriately titled album, I might say, was not a hit. Title track's okay, but by and large, this is not a very strong record. And I think it's not particularly strong because it was rushed, and because, amazingly, Eddie had not learned his lessons from his brush with death. He was still drinking and snorting coke regularly, and I don't think he was in great shape. He talked about being, like, a handful in the studio and having a really hard time focusing and getting the record together. So when it came out, it wasn't very good. People realized it wasn't very good, didn't sell. You know, where's the party? Not here. <laughs> so I would not recommend uh, I would not recommend that one. So once again, he was under the gun to deliver a hit to make up for the flop. Sort of back to square one. Now for his sixth record, he finally seemed to learn some lessons for the next album, which was called can't hold back that was released in august 1986 almost a full three years after where's the party eddie took his time crafting this album and i think that is what really paid off because the album was a huge hit it was a top 20 album on the billboard charts and it featured his highest charting single which you all should know take me home tonight here take a listen Home Tonight is not just an Eddie Money song. It's a duet. It is a duet with uh, Ronnie Spector, who is from the group The Renettes, who had a series of hits in the 1960s. She used to be married to the monstrous producer Phil Spector, who was famous for his wall of sound production technique in the 60s. She got out of that marriage, but you can read about uh, her survival in her book, which was called Be My Baby, How I Survived, Mascara, Miniskirts, and Madness, or My Life as a Fabulous Renette. Now, you might be a little confused. The song is called Take Me Home Tonight, but she sings this part, Be My Little Baby, in that song. Well, Be My Little Baby is really a sample from the Renette's biggest song, Be My Baby, hence the title of the book. Now, at the time, his production team originally wanted Martha Davis from the Motels to sing Ronnie's Be My Little Baby part. But Eddie pushed back and he said, more or less, if I'm gonna write a song that is sampling Ronnie Spector, why don't we just go out and get Ronnie Spector to sing her part? How did you two get together? Well, when I first, uh, when I first heard the, uh, the demo, it was uh, written by two guys in England, and it was a great song, and uh, the catch line, Take Me Home Tonight, was really good, but I said, it said, just like Ronnie sang, and Richie, Pizzu uh, Richie Zito, we were using uh, uh, Martha Davis from Martha in the Motels, and she had got a great voice, but I said, why don't we get Ronnie? And I said, well, she's probably busy and everything else like that. <laughs> but I called her up, and she came, <laughs> she came all out here and did it with me. At the time, Ronnie was more or less retired. The Ronettes broke up in the late 60s. She tried to revive them in the 70s, but didn't really go anywhere. She put out a couple of solo albums, but they didn't sell. So her group was effectively defunct, and she wasn't really working. And to add to that, she got married and started a family in the early 80s. So she was almost entirely out of the music industry by that point. In fact, when Eddie called her, first thing he said to her was, I've heard you're kind of hard to get a hold of. 
Now, you can read about that interaction in that book I was talking about, Be My Baby by Ronnie Spector. The book basically ends with her collaboration with Eddie Money. She put the book out just a couple of years after they had that hit. So she agrees to do the song, goes into the studio, records her part, and loves the end result. And to me, the end result is one of, if not the best rock duet of the 1980s. I would probably have to say it's my second favorite because my favorite is Stop Dragging My Heart Around by Tom Petty and Stevie Nicks. But in the 80s, there actually was a lot of what I would call intergenerational duets. Artists from the 60s or early 70s doing a song with a contemporary 80s artist. And a lot of them are really good. I'm talking about Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes. Um, I've had the time of my life from Dirty Dancing. George Michael and Aretha Franklin on I Knew You Were Waiting For Me. Brian Adams and Tina Turner on It's Only Love. Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush, Don't Give Up. All these are pretty good songs. But Take Me Home Tonight is way better than any of them. And honestly, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, it's right there with Stop Dragging My Heart Around. And when I watch the music video for Take Me Home Tonight, at that point it's a wash because that is a beautiful music video. Tom Petty, Stevie Nicks music video is, is just them in the studio. Not interesting. The music video that Ronnie and Eddie did is beautiful. Shot in black and white, and Eddie is performing in an empty arena, and the whole video has this very slow, teasing reveal of Ronnie. And it just has, like... The feel is that it's the return of a legend. Like, this surprise reveal after most of the song gets played. And it's a beautiful production. It's exactly the sort of thing that music videos should be. The music video also sort of makes it feel like, although Eddie's doing most of the singing, this is really Ronnie's song. That's great, because Ronnie is an undeniable talent, and she's sort of forgotten. Um, in, in rock history and music history, and that's a shame. Incredible talent. And what's worse is that Ronnie hoped this revival with Take Me Home Tonight would sort of springboard her back into her music career. And she turned around real quick and got an album out in, a year later in 1987, and Eddie even returned the favor and did uh, another duet with her. But he didn't show up in that music video. He duetted with her on a song called Who Can Sleep? It's not bad, but it wasn't enough, and the album didn't sell. And Ronnie, unfortunately, sort of slinked back into obscurity. And her music career, as far as, the, as far as pop stardom goes, came to an end. Which is too bad. I really think with the right support, she could have had that late-era career revival. But sadly, it, uh, the record wasn't enough, and it, it just didn't pan out. Going back to Eddie's album... The other big hit off of that was I Want to Go Back, which features some great saxophone, which is one thing I can't believe I haven't even mentioned by this point. Eddie plays the sax, 
It's really good. Take a quick listen because I want to go back. I want to go back, go back, because I feel it so much older, but I can't go back, I know. Okay, in October 1988, Eddie released his seventh album, which was called Nothing to Lose. And for once, he followed a hit with another genuine hit. The lead-off track and single, called Walk on Water, was a top ten hit. It hit number nine on the Billboard charts. This is one of my favorites of Eddie's songs. In fact, it actually might be my favorite, so see if you recognize this. I love that song. This is the song I, I posted on Facebook the day he passed away. And it always surprises me that this didn't become the radio staple that Baby Hold On and Take Me Home Tonight, even Shaken, had become. This was a huge hit. I don't know why it doesn't get much radio play today. Whatever the case, I think this is one of his best songs. And unfortunately, although he doesn't disagree with me, he is quite vocal about not enjoying playing this song in concert. He says he feels stupid with all the na-na-na's part says that was originally supposed to be a saxophone bit, but for whatever reason, he didn't have the saxophone when he was putting the song together, so they just stuck with him singing na-na-na-na-na-na. And, and by the way, beyond that song, it's a pretty good album. If, if I'm recommending Eddie Money albums, there's, there's probably four. There's his first album, there's No Control, Can't Hold Back, and probably this one. Those, I think, are his strongest complete albums. You know what, there's one more, but we'll get to that in a moment. Now, in 1989, I think his label was starting to feel that Eddie was getting a little long in the tooth, and they felt that his time in the spotlight might be coming to an end. And to capitalize on that, they made him put out a Greatest Hits album. And on that Greatest Hits album was a couple of new songs, including this one called Peace in Our Time, which you might recognize because it was played over the end credits of a little movie called Rambo vs. Blood Part 2. Take a listen. Peace in our life Remember the call Oh, a tear for my brothers Think of them all Home of the brave We'll never fall Oh wait, no, I'm sorry, that's not Eddie Money. That is Frank Stallone singing a song called Peace in Our Life, not Peace in Our Time. <laughs> I will always mix those two songs up, and I have to wonder how many people listening heard Frank singing just now and believed it was Eddie. <laughs> and if you did, don't feel bad. I, I, those guys have similar voices. Anybody could make that mistake, but... We're just having some fun. That was Peace in Our Life by Frank Stallone. So here is Peace in Our Time by Eddie Bach. Again, that was Eddie Money, not Frank Stallone. Okay, let's move on. So his eighth album, which was called Right Here, was released in September 1991, which is the same time that Van Halen had put out a song called Right Now. So they must have been on the same wavelength there. 
And actually, I might not even be kidding, because this album has a harder rock sound than any of his previous albums. It has a very full, robust production. There's a lot of bells and whistles here. It, it doesn't have any real classic, iconic hits. And it was basically his last grasp on the Billboard charts. I'll play a, a quick clip of a song called Fall in Love Again. This hit number 54 on the Billboard charts, and it was his final charting single. I just wanna fall in love again. I'd say that's a, a fairly decent song to close out your run on the pop charts. You know, it was just a marker point from when he had to shift phases in his career. His time as a pop star were effectively at an end. Because I can talk about the next two albums together. In May 1995, he released an album called Love and Money. And in May 1999, he released an album called Ready Eddie. Neither of these albums charted at all. And if any singles were released from either one, none of those charted either. Now, Love and Money is an adult contemporary sounding album. A lot of piano ballads, soft rock. Not for me. I didn't like this one very much. There's a track on there called Just No Giving Up. That's probably the best song. Doesn't do much for me. Ready Eddie, that's more rock and roll. The opening track is called Ready to Rock. That sort of captures the theme of the whole album. Sort of his return to his rock roots. Not bad. Also not particularly interesting. The only thing that caught my eye about this project is that it was largely a collaborative effort with Frankie Sullivan, the guitarist of Survivor. And that's interesting to see what Frankie was up to in 1999 because that's basically when Survivor was at, like, their low point. I think this is what Frankie was spending his time with, trying to help Eddie get his career back on track. Not a bad record, but it didn't do a whole lot. It's time for another break. Let's go to a segment that takes a look back at the biggest stories of classic rock from years ago. This is what I call Back in Time. So Huey Lewis, take us back in time. Is this a 50s or 1999? Sweet sounds of Three Dog Nights, Mama Told Me Not to Come, which was the number one hit in July 1970, 50 years ago. And you might not know, that song was written by Randy Newman. So how about that? Okay, so a couple of headlines here. July 25, 1980, 40 years ago, ACDC releases the album Back in Black. Now in my Bon Scott episode, I talked about all the rumors and the evidence that shows that some of the lyrics that show up on Back in Black may very well have been written by Bon Scott. And that makes for a real interesting discussion about the album, but that sort of gets a little too deep into the weeds for some fans. I just want to give that album a shout-out here because I think I could make the case that Back in Black is the greatest rock record of all time. You know, and I'm sure there's all kinds of people who would point to, you know, Sgt. Pepper's or Exile on Main Street or, I don't know, Blood on the Tracks, but... I think there's a case to be made that Back in Black needs to be in that conversation, too. Give the people what they want. Sold more than anything. And every song on that album is a Stone Cold classic. At the very least, it is the greatest hard rock record of all time. No question. All right, let's move on. July 21, 1990. 30 years ago. 
Roger Waters and numerous guest stars stage a performance of Pink Floyd's The Wall in Berlin, Germany to commemorate the fall of the Berlin Wall just eight months earlier. Among the guests were the Scorpions, Cyndi Lauper, Thomas Dolby, Sinead O'Connor, the band, and Brian Adams. I actually watched part of this performance on YouTube. It's awesome. And I think it's really cool that Roger got to do this album and this performance to celebrate such a historic event. It's a very cool melding of music and actual human history. So if you haven't seen that video, that those performances on YouTube, I really recommend looking them up. Now, I eventually did sort of get to see this live. Roger went on tour in 2010 and for several years playing The Wall in its entirety live in all these arenas. And my brother and I went down to Chicago to the United Center and we saw him do The Wall all the way through. One of the best concerts I ever attended. We got there super early, and we had nosebleed seats originally, but because we were there so early, and because I guess they had uh, some seats that hadn't sold, an usher came up to us and gave us a free upgrade to the 100 level. So we got, like, not front row seats, but, like, real expensive <laughs> seats for not what we paid. Only time it's ever happened to me. And it was such a memorable visual show. I loved it. I loved the album, The Wall. So it was very cool to have that experience. Now, to tie all this in with what we're talking about today, apparently, Eddie Money had an opportunity to perform in Berlin, not as part of uh, Roger's show, but for his song, Peace in Our Time, which I was joking about earlier. Eddie said this, The Berlin Wall was coming down. We had the opportunity to get over there and actually play in our time as the wall came down that would have been a fantastic thing to do but my management company dropped the ball on that and fell through can you imagine if i went over there as the berlin wall came down peace in my time we'd be doing it live would that have been incredible or what not just for the money of the fans for the glory of the song that song really fit that situation communism was dead the berlin wall was coming down it was a really great time get no arguments from me man yes that would have been awesome it's really too bad it didn't happen Okay, that's all I got for back in time. Let's close this out. Final segment, go. Okay, Eddie's 11th album was released in 2007. It's called Wanna Go Back, and it's a covers record. All the songs on it, though, are not rock, but they're R&B and soul songs. Classics from the 60s. It's, it's very similar to a couple of Huey Lewis albums. One he did in 1994 called Four Chords and Several Years Ago, and another he did in 2010 called Soulsville. But I think Eddie's is better than both. The song selection is fantastic. He picks some Stone Cold classics, and I think he plays them respectfully and with a lot of enthusiasm, and his voice still sounds great. And a couple of these songs are duets, which he performs with his daughter, Jessie. And she sounds really good, too. In fact, here, take a listen to Eddie and his daughter, Jessie, on one of my favorite songs from this era called Hold On, I'm Coming. Now, that song was originally by Sam and Dave iconic group from the 60s. I think Eddie and Jesse sound really nice here. I like that version a lot. The only complaint I would have about this album, Want to Go Back, is that because he was doing R&B and soul covers, this would have been a huge opportunity 
for him to reunite with Ronnie Spector, maybe even on one of her old songs. I'm stunned that she doesn't show up here. Maybe he reached out, maybe it fell through, I don't know, but that would have been the only thing that could have really put this album over the top for me if Ronnie Spector returned and did a song with him. Fortunately, it didn't happen. In 2012... Eddie, like many rock stars of his generation, eventually gave in and started participating in some uh, advertisements. Do you remember this one? So we all set? I've got two tickets to paradise. Back your bags, we'll leave tonight. Oh, it's two next month, actually. Paradise! No, four, remember? Whoa, 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 whoa. You know, Ronnie, folks who save hundreds of dollars by switching to Geico sure are happy. And how happy are they, Jimmy? Happier than any money running a travel agency. You know, at the time, it was pretty funny. <laughs> and upon rewatching it, it's not bad. I can't blame him for doing it. He looks like he's having some fun in the, in the commercial, too. So now more interesting than that is in 2015, he started putting together a musical based on his life called Two Tickets to Paradise. Now, I read he was working on this as far back as 2009. But it was around 2015 that he connected with producer Dresden Angle, who really started to help him hone down the script of this musical and get it casted and get it booked in a theater. It was going to be played in Rochester, New York. Dresden produced it along with some other people, and she played Eddie's mom in the play as well. And they started performing at this at the Kodak Theater in New York. And they were, unfortunately, in Eddie's last year alive, they were putting together plans to take the musical out on the road. But, unfortunately, he passed away before those plans could ever come to fruition. Now, one nasty story that Eddie got dragged into. In May 2016, his ex-drummer, Glenn Simmons, sued him for wrongful termination. And he accused Eddie of firing him because he had a history of health issues. And after a couple of months in court, he, he also claimed that Eddie sexually harassed his fiance. His case got real ugly and there was a lot of mudslinging. You can read about it. The case went on for years, but Eddie was eventually vindicated in 2019. The courts found that he had a right to put whoever he wanted in his band. Because basically all this was over was that Eddie in the mid-2010s dissolved his old backing band to make room for several of his kids to play in the band with him. Basically, he wanted his, his family as part of the show. And I don't think Glenn appreciated being replaced. It's just too bad it got so nasty. Eddie, of course, denied the sexual harassment allegations. Nobody else ever stepped forward and corroborated anything, so I don't think those allegations went anywhere. But you can read about it. I would hate to believe it, but it is possible. You know, you never know with people. In any case, this is a really ugly event in the last years of Eddie's life. And I think by the point that the lawsuit got settled, he was just happy to get through it. Now, a more positive thing that was going on around this time is that Eddie followed in the footsteps of Ozzy Osbourne and his family and starred in a reality show called Real Money in 2018 on Access TV. First season was a hit, apparently. I never watched it. But it got renewed for a second season that was supposed to air in 2019. Unfortunately, that also never came to pass. Because on August 24th, 2019, Eddie announced that he had stage four esophageal cancer. He had known for a couple of months. He had told Dresden that he wouldn't be able to go on the road with the musical because of the cancer diagnosis. And Axis 
and Eddie decided that the second season of Real Money would follow Eddie through his cancer treatments. Unfortunately, that never came to pass because less than a month later, on September 13th, 2019, Eddie succumbed to cancer and passed away. Now, on top of the musical and the TV show, Eddie also had a new album in the works. And the album was called Brand New Day. It was supposed to be released in spring, early summer of 2019. But because of the cancer diagnosis, him and his family kicked that back. And now, almost a year after he's passed away, his final album, uh, Brand New Day, has been released. You can find it online. I'm going to play a clip of the title track. Take a listen. Hey, hey, I'm feeling okay. Hey, hey, it's a brand new day. last years he still sounds really good he never lost his voice he sounds really good on this i like the song i listened to most of the album i think it's done really well now as far as concerts go i only saw him one time it was july 2014 he was playing the waukesha county fair the blue oyster cult opened for him when eddie came on stage he called them the lollipop guild <laughs> because they're short <laughs> blue oyster cult has a lot of short guys in the pant it's kind of a funny joke. I do remember that he, like I was saying, he sounded great. He never lost his voice, and he played a lot of sax. And there's some videos from that night that I revisited recently. And you can see him on stage. I mean, the man is working. It seems that he should be out of breath, but, you know, he's still able to alternate between playing the sax and singing, which to me is always quite impressive, you know, especially for a guy at that age. The only thing I, I remember I didn't care for from that night is that he really rushed through Take Me Home Tonight, and he didn't have a female backup singer singing Ronnie's part. That's the most important part of the song. You can't skip that. I also remember doing him a lot of crowd work. Lots of jokes with the audience. Very fan-friendly. So I, I wish I got to see him more than once, but that was the only time I saw him. All right. I've gone on for quite a bit now, so we're going to call it a day. Just some final thoughts. I, like I said earlier, Take Me Home Tonight is just its one of the best rock duets ever. I think he's underappreciated for it. Eddie was a very fan-friendly and funny guy, and he was just one of the best examples of 80s pop rock. If you like Huey Lewis, you really ought to like Eddie, too. Very similar artists. And most importantly, because he's gone, it's up to us, the fans, to keep his music alive. So get those albums. Look him up on YouTube. He's no longer with us on Earth, so we have to keep him alive in our hearts. Now, a little bit of housekeeping. Thanks for sticking around for this episode. Our next episode is going to be about the band Boston. I talked about them on YouTube before, but we're going to dive a little deeper this time around. And then after that, we're going to look at another tour, like I did for Aerosmith. I had a lot of fun talking about Aerosmith's Disaster 2009 tour, so I'm going to talk about another disaster. We're going to talk about Van Halen's 2004 reunion tour with Sammy Hagar. Got a lot of good stuff on that. The intro song that played was I Can Play That Rock and Roll by Joe Walsh. And I would like to say thank you to Cher Ross and Britt Lightning from the band Vixen for recording that cameo that we played at the start. And I'd like to cite one book called Hold On, The Story of Our Friend Eddie Money, which was written by that Dresden Angle who I mentioned earlier. This is the only biography of Eddie Money. It blows my mind that he never wrote an autobiography, and it makes me sad that nobody put out a biography about him before this. 
I used this book for a lot of research for the stuff I talked about today. I think Dresden did a good job putting it together. I think she's a first-time author on this. It's not the strongest biography I've read by any stretch, but I think it's a good tribute to the guy. It's a very fawning book. You have to keep in mind it was written by a friend of his, not like a, a, a rock journalist, which is fine. There's there's room for all sorts of books when it comes to rock stars. And then, of course, I have to recommend the book I mentioned earlier, Be My Baby by Ronnie Spector. I feel that it might be incredibly poor timing on my end to celebrate the career and life of maybe the only classic rock artist to have close connections to law enforcement during these times, especially when all the other podcasts I listen to are putting a big emphasis on celebrating and saluting black artists and raising up black voices. So in an effort to not miss an opportunity to do that, I would really recommend reading Ronnie Spector's biography and listening to her music. Ronnie Spector's story is incredible. She is a survivor of some horrible things that she was subjected to by her first husband, Phil. And I really feel she had the talent to have that late career 80s revival that Tina Turner did. It just never panned out. I don't think she had the proper support. And I think she is unfairly overlooked in the broad scope of music history. So we can't just remember Eddie Money. We have to remember Ronnie Spector as well. She's a huge part of his story, and her story is amazing in its own right. So that's my book recommendation for today. Ronnie Spector, Be My Baby. And finally, please find us on social media. We are at Play That Podcast on Twitter. We are Play That Rock and Roll on Facebook, but if you search all one word, Play That Podcast, our Facebook page will come up. If you search Play That Rock and Roll on YouTube, our YouTube channel will come up, or my old YouTube channel will come up, and that will point you the current one and of course if you're listening to us on itunes please 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 rate and review us it is so important in these early episodes it really helps us get established so if you could please just take a moment and give me a rating it would be much appreciated okay with that let's call it a day let's shake with the money man one more time eddie play us out just like we're saying Be my little baby Baby, my darling oh, 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 oh. I feel the hunger It's a hunger Take me home tonight I don't want to let you go to It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.